0: From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the
1: most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Friday, October the 16th, 2020, and uh, we're going to be speaking today uh, first with a a political scientist and then with uh, a uh, public uh, health expert in the second hour. uh, The political scientist is Matt Dickinson. Uh, professor of that topic at uh, Middlebury College, and uh, and then later on, Tracy Dolan, the Deputy Commissioner of Health, will be updating us on where we are in the uh, battle against the coronavirus pandemic here in Vermont. Uh, the news is not good from elsewhere in the United States and not good from other parts of the world, including Europe, which is seeing big increases, and this really seems to be heading back to about where they were back in, uh, in the wintertime. And uh, one word for that, which I guess is yikes, but uh, we'll get to that in the second hour of the program this morning. Uh, in between, we'll be uh, having one of our Friday conversations with our national correspondent, Bob Nay. We'll be weighing in just after the uh, 10 o'clock news this morning. And as always, we uh, do welcome your calls. Uh, join us in the conversation here on the Dave Graham Show and WDEV FM. <clears throat> excuse me, FM and AM. We are uh, at 244-1777. That's the local number in Waterbury. The toll-free number is one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. 877 We always enjoy hearing from folks out there. So uh, I believe, uh, speaking of the telephone, that we have uh, Matt Dickinson on the phone already right now this morning and uh matt uh, thank you very much for joining me my pleasure so uh lots of political news this week i thought i would touch base with you because uh you're always a good guy to get on the radio here when we want to sort of do a review of uh recent political goings on and uh uh, not sure exactly where to start but just sort of to pick something at random the uh, amy coney barrett hearings uh went off this week i I think pretty much as, as expected or did you sense any real surprises here no real surprises
2: um unless it was the democrats not really pushing her on her qualifications so much as turning it into an election issue but it, i mean even diane feinstein at the end of it turned to Lindsey graham and basically said this is one of the best run um confirmation hearings she's been involved with so there was a little bit of love there which you don't
1: see in the polarized climate <laughs> maybe that's the surprise <laughs> but uh yeah i i i um I mean, I thought that there's been a trend in recent uh, years of these nominations of uh, the nominee uh, really uh, trying very hard to bat away uh, any uh, any questions that might uh, engender controversial answers. Uh, but in her case, I mean, there was one thing that struck me, which was that, uh, you know, some of the answers uh, have been pretty clear. For instance, you know, the question is, uh, are, are you uh, – are you are you basically a a pro-life person um which i think a lot of the democrats were trying to get at in certain ways and um and and the answer comes in a couple different ways as far as i can tell one is one of which is the president's announcement all throughout his his 2016 campaign and and uh, more recently that he will only appoint pro-life judges to the supreme court that's number one number two is some of her past involvements with uh, for instance, signing a letter that ended up in a newspaper ad it, that labeled the Roe vs. Wade decision of 1973 barbaric. And, um, did, and, and yet now she's saying, uh, you know, she is not wanting to say w- which way she would go on, on any, any, uh, decision related to Roe vs. Wade. Uh, what do you make of that, if anything?
2: Well, it's also the case that her mentor, uh, who she acknowledged in her um, famous Rose Garden speech, uh, mm-hmm. and Scalia, uh, Antonin Scalia, um, has um, voted against Roe. Uh, the reasoning underneath Roe v. Wade and and subsequent court cases he was involved with um, pushed back against that decision. So there's reason to believe she thinks it's poorly reasoned legally. Um, but you have to understand during the confirmation process, there's nothing to gain from publicizing those views. Um, what The real question is what she's going to do on the court, whether there'll be any, even an opportunity to overturn it. I'm dubious, frankly, uh, because public opinion is so solidly behind where the current court ruling is on that issue. Um, but we'll have to see. But certainly in the, in the context of a confirmation, I think her strategy was, I have the votes, don't do anything to give anybody a pretext to change their mind, like a Mitt Romney um, or some of those more moderate Republicans.
1: Yeah, that, 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 uh, and, and it seems to have worked, and, and we're expecting now that, uh, I think, uh, actually, uh, Lindsey Graham, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has scheduled a vote for next Thursday, is that correct?
2: Yes. The, the schedule seems to be they, they get out of committee, uh, next Thursday, <clears> assuming <throat> that everybody votes along party lines, and it should be debated on the floor and voted on three or four days before the November
1: 3rd election. Right, and, uh, I mean, how do you think that'll play as a I mean to the extent that there are still any issues, there might change anyone's mind out there, and that's certainly right. uh, no uh, that's certainly dubious right now, but I'm wondering uh, uh, will that have any influence on the election at all?
2: Well, I think um, you're right. I don't think there's going to be a lot of uh, minds to be changed then, but it will be a salient issue as those you know remaining three to four percent of undecideds go to the polls. Um, we know from past elections that anybody who's undecided at that point usually isn't paying much attention to politics. So I doubt this would have any decision uh, impact on them. It might turn out Trump's base. um, He has an accomplishment here. um, Mm -hmm. So Maybe it'll affect turnout at the margins in key states. Um, It will certainly dominate the news for the 24-hour news cycle there. This assumes, of course, she's confirmed, which I,
1: I think is a safe assumption. Yeah, it's, it certainly looks that way. And uh, speaking of things looking certain ways, uh, a lot of the recent polling indicates that uh, Joe Biden is in very good shape heading into this. Or Actually, I, I keep talking about it as if the election is sometime in the future. It's actually going on as we speak, but uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the proper uh, descriptive phrases are c- coming into this new era where we no longer have election day but election season. Um, anyway, uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you... Th- I mean, overall, do you think that uh, that Biden's got a lock on this thing, or do you think that there's really a strong chance that uh, President Trump could emerge victorious?
2: I think uh, Biden, uh, the odds are that he will win the popular vote by 3 4 or 5%. It could be closer in the Electoral College, only because we know comparing his current margin in state polling in those battleground states, those six to eight key battleground states, he's actually... Donald Trump is running slightly ahead of where he ran, not by much, but slightly ahead in 2016. So if you're a Trump supporter, you're hoping once again he sort of gets dealt this, um, you know, straight flush and and can somehow pull off the impossible again. It's unlikely. It was unlikely in 2016. So I would not say he has a lock, Biden, but I would say the odds are in his favor
1: um you actually the electoral college and actually i don't think that's something we've talked about before uh you know you hear and i certainly see online here and there folks uh debating its uh existence and continuation and so on um and and certainly if if the popular vote goes with uh goes with uh joe biden and the electoral college goes with donald trump this time it'll be the third time in 20 years that uh the majority has not ruled um is this showing uh, some cracks in this system? I think so. I think there's
2: a real question in the current political system in which we put so much emphasis on people voting and the importance of the vote. and yet the reality is some people's vote count more than others, um, and depending on where you live, and it's also the case that the majority uh, vote doesn't necessarily determine or the plurality winner isn't necessarily going to be the election. and That rubs a lot of people sort of at the basic, you don't have to be a political expert to say there's something not fair about that. Now, you know, I, I would hope we would have a, a big debate on the meaning of the Electoral College and it, it, why some people still defend it. My worry is we're trying to reform it. And, and you've talked about this with this movement to get states to adapt this national popular vote plan. Vermont has Mm -hmm. signed on to it, where each state commits its electoral votes to whoever wins the national vote. I'm worried that's a a way of amending the Constitution without really debating it. So I hope we would have a debate about the Electoral College uh, before we change it. But you're right. I think a lot of people would certainly uh, think twice about the system we have if, once again, we had a split between the popular vote and the Electoral
1: College vote. Yeah, it's kind of weird how the way to fix an end around is maybe an end around, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it what it starts to feel like after a while, and, and then where the it's like a hall of mirrors or something, but. Uh uh, look, look, we'll, we'll get to the National Popular Vote Movement in a minute. I just wanted to uh, mention that, you know, your, your discussion of, of how the uh, electoral well, I've vote a little um, recently is, uh, um, I mean, I figured I mean, out there that... There is a mathematical uh, problem here. In Vermont has one electoral vote for every roughly 208,000 residents because we have a population of about 624,000 people. Uh, California has 55 electoral votes. In a population of 39.5 million, and so what that means is that California has one elector for each 718,000 people, and these are round figures, but uh, I'm not going to the final three places. But uh, the, um, <clears throat> I mean, what what should people make of that?
2: Well, and it goes beyond that. Think about the campaigning that's being done. Um, if you live in Vermont, uh, Donald Trump. And maybe you think this is a good thing, is not even going to come in here to solicit your vote, uh, more in California. And vice versa, if you're in a solidly blue state, you're not going to hear from, uh, sorry, red state, from Joe Biden. So, in all sorts of ways, the Electoral College creates disparities in the worth of an individual's vote. Um, and, you know, without sort of beating a dead horse, you can see why people aren't happy about that. But the question, Dave, is always what is the alternative? And, what inequities are involved in that so if you went to you know a straight popular vote which seems appealing um because then everybody's vote regardless of where they live is is equal well Mm -hmm. yes and no i mean candidates are going to gravitate towards you know highly densely populated areas
1: where they can use their resources more efficiently yep um and, I mean, I've, I've seen people arguing about this online, and, you know, among the arguments is that uh, Vermont's votes would count for nothing, and, and um, you know, basically, and I mean, I, I typically see this from Republicans, If you know, if we get rid of the Electoral College, Vermont's votes would count for nothing, and I said, well, <laughs> you know, I'm, I remarked to one guy, I said, your vote for President Trump will count for nothing, because Vermont's three electors are clearly going to go for Biden, and uh your vote will just go by the wayside whereas at least if 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 we were one person one vote your vote would be you know one of 180 million or whatever it is and uh uh and and count equally with anybody living in New York or California or whatever so uh you'd get a you'd get off zero <laughs> i mean that's uh but I, I i don't know i mean i think some of this unfortunately is colored by um colored by you know the people's political preferences i mean people take notice of the fact that that it was george w bush and donald trump who most recently benefited from uh the existence of the electoral college system and uh, folks who are not fans of these two presidents uh are seem to be particularly exercised I, i mean and i also have not seen any republicans recently that i know of um maybe you can tell me there are some who advocate uh getting rid of the electoral college i mean you know of any republicans who are saying we should do that
2: uh, none that are alive today. Uh, yeah. they used to when the Democrats were advantaged by it, and you're absolutely right. They argue on principle, but underneath that principle is a, a raw political calculation about which system benefits
1: who. Yeah, uh, and I wonder, I mean, actually, uh, I'm curious about the history here. When were the Democrats last advantaged by the Electoral College? Well, for the longest time,
2: um, the, you know, the Democrats were more rurally spread out. And the Republicans, you know, now we're going back into the late 19th century, early 20th. The the Republicans were, you know, more, um, had stronger support in densely populated areas. And there the concern is kind of reversed. You'd have complaints from the Republicans that the Electoral College was advantaging Democrats. But that was a long time ago. Hmm. Um, I don't think, you know, it's efforts to get rid of the Electoral College. There must be legislation submitted every two years in Congress, Um, and it just never goes anywhere because. Nobody wants to um, represent a state and basically say you're going to lose the advantages you have under the current system.
1: Yeah, when uh, when before George W. Bush, actually, I, I thought it was back in the in the latter half of the 19th century, uh, be, uh, the previous time that the electoral college and the popular vote actually diverged. Is that right? Or am I, yeah, was I, the, am I missing?
2: Yeah, the big uh, election was 1876, and that was that Reconstruction where there were. Um, Disputed electoral college votes Coming from three states Both parties Mm -hmm. put forward a slate of electors And it was the Famous deal where um, The Democrats Even though Sam Tilden Their guy had won the the vote The popular vote They agreed to give the electoral college votes To Rutherford Hayes If he pulled federal troops out of the South Um, Of course the South Was solidly Democratic at the time And and so that deal was made that's the last time we've had
1: the uh, the, the split until Bush. Um, yeah, that's a, the, I mean that's a long time to go between the, these kinds of disputes, and then to see two pop up in 16 years is kind of uh, there's a little bit of a, of a I don't know almost head spitting aspect to that. That when you take taken the whole historical picture of the country. It, uh, uh, and uh I mean, I guess that's a sign also just how in these times how how divided the country is um maybe that's a you know a function of what's happening there matt i i wanted to get back to you know sort of the some of the headline we we wandered around a bit and got to the electoral college, which I think is a fascinating conversation but uh the um uh, wanted to get back to some of the sort of top news stories in Vermont, uh, or in the country this week with you. And of course last night we had this, uh, strange, uh, confluence of president, presidential candidate town halls. Uh, it was going to be a debate, but I guess it was, uh, some kind of a, a, uh, something else. Um, what did you make of what happened last night?
2: Well, I, uh for professional obligation reasons, I tried to take in both of them. Of course, there was an overlap of yeah, an hour between <laughs> yeah. Biden and the Trump one, so it was kind of difficult to do. But it was like night yep. and day. It was a, it was a surreal experience. On the NBC, I see uh, Samantha Guthrie essentially debating the president, talking over him. It was almost like the first debate between Trump and Biden. And then I switched over to Stephanopoulos, and you know, you have this very lucid. Um, low-key conversation i mean biden was biden of course he wandered at times but yeah. you could at least yeah. understand uh what the conversation was about and they gave on the biden one it was actually a town hall people actually got to ask questions um mm-hmm. you see that with from very few questions from the the observers um, it just
1: was not as nearly as productive did you think that uh, Samantha Guthrie kind of overdid it? Was she uh, you know, too much the star of the show coming out of the blocks there?
2: Yeah, I thought it defeated the purpose a little bit of the town hall. I understand what she wanted to do. I mean, Donald Trump has made some comments that, as president, you want him to be accountable for, whether it's, you know, is he going to accept the results of the election? Does he feel any responsibility for, you know, deaths under COVID, for his stance on masks? They can be asked once but i do think it was a little bit of a, an overkill but again partisans will disagree
1: yeah <laughs> of course uh i mean and it, it's so weird I, you know as a long time journalist I, I really sympathize with the people who are still doing this every day because I, I think they're trying to maintain the old standards of objectivity and balance and and sort of um, uh, you know respectful uh uh stenography in some cases uh you know and and Uh, It's very, very difficult, frankly, because of this character on the scene. I mean, it just made, you know, he has blown everything up, and, uh, uh, and, and so, I mean, I guess part of me sympathizes, I mean, part of me says, boy, she went over the top, but part of me sympathizes with her, because, I mean, she was basically trying to, uh, trying to tame a bucking bronco, you know. And uh, that's uh, sometimes maybe what you had to do, but I don't know. Hey, we have a, a listener on the line, uh, Eileen from uh, Jericho. Good morning, Eileen.
3: Hi. Um, sorry, I, if I had known he was on for an hour, I probably would have waited <laughs> to hear um, to hear more of what he has, your guest has to say. Um, I wanted to comment on the Electoral College, um, and far be it from me to uh, <laughs> discuss this with a political science um, professor from Middlebury, because I, I know. Um, my knowledge isn't very great but um the uh one thing i wanted to say is you don't hear republicans um calling for a you know a, a change because republicans in general respect the constitution <laughs> and um they, they understand that there is reasons for these things um you know being put into effect and I recently started looking up. I've done this before, but I can never remember this. Um, I recently started looking into Federalist Paper sixty eight and reading it because that's where they um, uh, talk about the um, Electoral College and why you know it was instituted and um, Mm -hmm. and and so the founding fathers did not want a democracy. I mean, I think people have to understand that we're a whatever you call a representative republic. they wanted to avoid a democracy by. I mean, I mean, it seems obvious that we should all just vote for the president and whoever wins. But that's not what they wanted, and they didn't want it for real reasons. And um, you know, for one thing, I want to say that it only comes into play when there's a close election, and the reason that we've seen it is because we're divided. <laughs> but when what it does do is, it does um, indicate that the person who wins the electoral college has broad support across the country. and if you were to take out LA County, I think it was I, I, if, if I remember my, looking at it yesterday, you took out just one county in the United States. But, uh, President Bush would have won the popular vote. And so, but you look at the counties was, um, I think they said there was 2600 counties that voted for Trump and there was 500 that voted for Hillary Clinton in the last collect- last election. Mm-hmm. So it it it, te- it shows you that there's broad support, and um, that's really important. And it really only comes into play when it's close. You know, when you have a, um, a president who's going to win by a uh, you know like the win the popular vote, um, he's probably also going to. I mean, um, sorry, win the elect the electoral vote. Uh, well, you know what I'm saying. It, 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 yeah,
1: um, I, I think I understand.
3: If, if there was a strong support for one candidate over the other. Um, it's not going to matter because yep. they're both going to go inside. And then the other thing I just want to say. Yeah, lean.
1: I want to get uh, I want to get Matt Dickens' response uh, on the other side of the break. Unfortunately, we got to uh, break you off here so that we can go to these uh, bottom of the hour. CBS newsmen. I appreciate the call. I think I get your drift, and uh, we'll ask Matt for some uh, response on the other side of the break. Uh, upcoming. Okay, thanks. Rick. Stay with us, folks.
4: Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren's store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our rockin' deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
1: It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Political science professor Matt Dickinson of Middlebury College is my guest here on the Dave Graham Show this morning. and. Uh... Uh Matt uh, the call from Mylene just before the break brought us back to the topic of the Electoral College and so I thought I'd let you take another swing at that if you like uh you know she she uh is a defender of the Electoral College talked about the uh, how it was written into the Constitution and maybe those guys really meant it of course uh, Article 5 is in the Constitution as well that's the article that allows amendments to the Constitution so uh, where do we come down on all of this well, she
2: makes some great points, and I appreciated the call. Um, she's right. The, the founders did not believe in direct democracy. Uh, and the Electoral College was also, you know, it's a function of political compromise, too, though. The states didn't want to give up their autonomy moving from the Articles of Confederation. So um, there, was, there, there are provisions in the Constitution that um, reflect political compromise, the provisions on the slavery that we would not accept today. So, you know, this changing legitimacy, um, I think, is a question we have to raise here, whether we have moved more in support of majority rule popular participation in elections. I mean, women couldn't vote under the original Constitution. So a lot has changed, but she makes some good points. I think the biggest point that she makes is, um, for supporters of the Electoral College, is it true that states, residents in states, as residents of a particular state, have interests that differ from residents in other states. I mean, that's the basis of the Senate. Um, this is really a debate about federalism. If you think federalism and states as autonomous actors still play a role today, then I think you can make a case to the Electoral College. Um, it's just a harder case to make because a lot of this the reasons why it's in there, I don't think we we no longer accept. Um, you know, there was a sense that the electors themselves were supposed to be independent actors um, because of the rank-and-file people, Joe and Jane Sixpack, didn't have the information to vote for the president. Well, I don't think we accept that today. Uh, so there's a, a lot has changed, and we have to sort of consider the Electoral College in part on the basis of what we think is legitimate today.
1: Yeah, I, I, I guess the... Uh uh it it is interesting to me that we have had this uh evolution really you think about it uh an evolution that has really featured the devolution of power uh from you know when when the nobles started to take it from the king with the magna carta to uh the idea that uh white male property owners could uh, participate in government in the late 18th century to the idea that women could participate in the early 20th century and the idea that uh people of color could participate in the mid 20th century um we seem to have had this evolution that features a trend toward more direct democracy and more participation um and uh, maybe maybe that's why uh, some of the almost uh, I don't know or, organic discomfort here or something these days with the electoral college. I mean, when it when it skews the results in in two presidential elections in twenty years, and maybe a th- or two in sixteen years, maybe a third in twenty years, <clears throat> it uh, just it does seem like it starts to chafe, right? Yes, and
2: you know she does uh, I think raise a good point, which is under normal conditions the electoral college actually magnifies a close popular vote so that the mm-hmm. person who wins the popular vote gets more electoral college votes the yep. problem is we're in this weird situation where the parties are so evenly balanced and so unevenly distributed that close elections in as you said have led to these splits and raised questions about the legitimacy of the system
1: yeah interesting um well uh, Back to, uh, sort of current news. I mean, I, 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 think this is a fascinating conversation. Maybe we should devote a whole hour to it at some point, but, uh, uh, we, we, we talked, uh, you know, some about the, uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett hearings and the, and the, uh, the, um, town halls last night. And, uh, actually back to those. I mean, you were saying that there was a huge contrast between the, uh, the two events, um, and I, and I try to come up with a metaphor occasionally. Would, did a, would garden hose versus fire hose work?
2: <laughs> that is a good metaphor, yeah. Um, you know, you're know, you getting a cool sip of information on, <laughs> on the uh, Seminophilus moderated one, and you're drinking from a fire hose under and <clears> the Trump <throat> one. Yeah, I like that. Um, I mean, I view debates as a chance. But they don't generally change minds. But they do mm-hmm. give you an opportunity to become informed about what the important issues are and what the candidates stand for, and I just didn't think we got that on NBC. And you can point your fingers at
1: anybody you want. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Uh, I don't know. It, it, I mean, it, it does. I, I, wonder, I didn't actually check. I wonder what the ratings did last night. I'm, I'm guessing NBC won. What do you think? Uh, yeah, or have you seen? I have no doubt. Yeah. I mean, and it of course like I'm, uh,
2: wreck it's than just normally flowing traffic.
1: Ah. <laughs> now, there's another pretty good metaphor. Okay, well, <laughs> on, <laughs> on to the next uh, I, agenda item here. Um, the president seems to have recovered from the coronavirus. He's telling people that you can don't let it dominate your life, and it, it's uh, basically uh, uh, continues on the theme, um, and maybe um, you know has been buttressed in his theme that it's less to worry about than some people make out. Um, is that all settling well with the voters, or what do you think?
2: Well, it's a recognition of the reality of this campaign, that the coronavirus and the, the Trump handling of it is the central issue. Biden is trying to make this a referendum on Trump, and Trump is trying to, you know, turn lemons into lemonade, by uh, saying it, it's not that bad, and you saw this in the penn harris debate as well, um, where Harris's opening attack was on the administration, and Pence said, well, it would have been worse if you guys were in charge that's pretty much all the republicans can say here the trump administration is it might yeah. be bad but it'd be worse under the other guys but that is the issue of the campaign there's no way you can wish it away
1: you know it's it's actually interesting to me that that um, there's also been a lot of commentary from the president about, about how bad things are with the uh, violence etc on the streets of america and um It almost makes you want to pause occasionally and say, um, "Excuse me, but who's the president right now?" Um, And of course, he wants to blame it on the Democrat mayors of the Democrat cities. And uh, but uh, I mean, actually, talk to us about that a little bit. Um, If there is if there are troubles in our cities, uh, who's more responsible, the mayor or the federal government?
2: Well. It is interesting because as you point out, Trump is trying to make the law and order argument, um, in part to move the debate away from the coronavirus. Um, Mm -hmm. and he's, you know, he's taking a page out of the Nixon playbook. Um, we've talked about this in the law and order campaign of 68 and 72 and against the backdrop of riots at the Democratic National Convention and so on. Um, but the polling right now, says even as people are becoming a little bit more concerned about, you know, these, these protests turning, uh, looting and, and so forth, it's not helping Donald Trump. So I think, to your question, a significant number of people are saying, well, it's happening on your watch, Donald Trump, um, and, you know, you don't get a pass here. Now, obviously, uh there's some local control issues State control issues involved here And you, we can sort of parse out The relative importance of each But at this point I don't think it's helping Donald Trump
1: Because, I mean, in part it. it, it I think it, the discussion um, it Tends to uh, fan the, uh, the idea of, of Malaise and just bad times in America when, when he gets up and he makes speeches About violence in our cities Which, which by the way... Um, I think a lot of folks on the right in particular have exaggerated to no small extent. I mean there are there have been pockets of, of problems and some looting and some burning. But uh you know, you hear the rhetoric and it's all about how you know, basically all of our cities have been burned down. <laughs> I mean there's gotta be some spot on that sliding scale there that more closely reflects reality. Uh and uh I don't mean you down you downplay it or underplay the concern about the problems. Etc. But but I think when you when you sort of fan the flames, literally and figuratively, uh, you, uh, you I don't know that it really helps the mood of the country. If that if which I would think you'd want to be as positive as possible if you're running for re-election.
2: Well, when you're the sitting president and the election is about you, you have to run on something more than you know fear of what the other side is doing. You have to have a record that you can point to um, in the end. Um, and pointing out that violence in the cities, you know, no matter what the dispute over the level of that violence is, is not necessarily going to guarantee you re-election. One,
1: one thing I've been struck by the, the absence of in this election is uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats in general uh pushing on the president who uh is the only president ever to run for re-election after being impeached um, i saw one count uh, indicating that by, as of last november when roger stones uh seven uh, convictions were returned trump's team had, had racked up uh 27 criminal convictions remember these are imposed by an independent judiciary this isn't just democrats talking 27 criminal criminal convictions between january of uh Seventeen when he took office, and November of nineteen when when this tally was reported, uh, and that actually sets a record in terms of the first you know the opening three years of a presidential term. Uh, it does the only one who competes with it in, in anybody's memory is Richard Nixon. The other law and order <laughs> president, <laughs> and I don't understand why the Democrats haven't sort of like raised their eyebrows and pointed their finger and said, uh, "Excuse me, that thing about law and order. Let's talk about it." Um, does that make sense, or, or am I being too, uh, I don't know, uh, too much of a wise guy here or something?
2: Well, the impeachment issue. I mean, this is you know this is a big deal when you try to impeach the president. I think there's a sense, um, and you're right, it's fallen off the radar. Uh, but as you might want to talk about, it, it may be resurrected, although not in the way that the Democrats necessarily want to talk about it. But the issue, uh, I think, with impeachment is it turned out not to be very popular. Um, the, you know, public opinion polls essentially said, yeah, we don't like what Donald Trump was trying to do with this charisma story, but we don't think it's Enough to remove the president We'd rather do that through the election And I think the Democrats have taken that lesson to, to heart That this is not a winning issue for them um, And it's partly It reminds people of The Hunter Biden story And the Democrats are saying we don't need to talk about that um, We can win this election Without sort of allowing Donald Trump To shift the narrative To a debate over you know the president's son And the yep. Ukraine So I think that's the strategic reason Why the Democrats have stayed away from impeachment
3: Hmm,
1: interesting hey uh, we have a listener on the line Don is calling in good morning Don from Elmore I should say how are you
5: you know I'm fine thanks but you have talked a couple of times on various issues of the bias on the Supreme Court or the possible bias if the uh, current candidate gets on there's one bias issue on the Supreme Court that you've either not thought about or totally avoided maybe you're afraid of it I don't know that is the religious bias since John, uh, since Justice Stevens retired, there has not been a single Protestant on the Supreme Court. You've had, Hmm. well, until Justice Biden, uh, until Ruth Gator Ginsburg passed away, I believe there were two that were Jewish, and everybody else was Roman Catholic, with the possible exception of Chief Justice uh, Roberts, who, as I understand it, was raised Roman Catholic but now attends uh, an Episcopal church which would put him in the same category as my son-in-law, who went to an Episcopal school and had a Presbyterian roommate, who accused him of being a junior varsity Catholic.
1: <laughs> okay. No, I, I actually I have read about you've this. Gotta
5: look at, you got to look at that as a bias, too, as far as I'm concerned, when, when one major group is literally shut out.
1: I... I... Yeah, I I get you, Don. It's an interesting point and, and uh I'll, I I want to ask Matt Dickinson what he thinks about it. Uh, I I would only say first off that I believe with uh, Amy Coney Barrett's uh, appointment to the court, I think I saw recently that uh uh you know, assuming that she is uh, uh confirmed and, it, and it takes her seat on the court, there will then be 6 out of 9 members of the court uh, who are Catholic and uh that is quite a representation for one religious group in the country. I believe they make up about, Catholics make up about uh, 20% of the U.S. population. And so, uh, and. but I, I don't know, I mean, because there's this constitutional ban on a test, uh, you know, test of religion for public office, you couldn't really say in the next Supreme Court hearing, uh, hey, we have enough Catholics. <laughs> you're Catholic, you're out of the game well, or whatever.
5: That's the whole point. How, how yeah. do you get around that when you're trying to keep uh, a bias out, but... It's clearly there But I'm curious to know Who you're driving at As the third one That's not Roman Catholic Unless you're counting Roberts As not a Roman Catholic
1: well, I, I didn't get to that level of detail. I just saw a uh, you know passing reference to this in some news story I read the other day, where you know the court was going to be 67% Catholic. Now maybe that was a, a bad estimate or something, but uh, still, I get your I, I get your uh, your point here, which is that uh, you know I mean in an ideal world, I guess you'd want to have maybe a couple Catholics and uh, some Protestants and maybe a Muslim or two now and then, and Jewish I people certainly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean. You, you, clearly uh, you worry about protestants M- muslims have never been on the court so there's uh there's a, there's a uh, you know i mean if you want to talk about bias anyway don uh, good point thanks for the call i appreciate it matt dickinson what do you what do you think about uh, what do you think about this uh, phenomenon of uh, of catholics on the court
2: well as you mentioned historically catholics were not on the court it was largely a bastion of white protestants for most of the nation's history now we've moved in the other direction i mean that reflects yeah. partly Catholics, uh, more than evangelical Protestants, are, are see the law as a way to redress you know, social injustices. So we just have a lot of Catholics going into the law profession. I think a bigger bias um, is eight members of the court have come from Harvard or Yale Law School. Uh, wow. And, you know, they're all appeals court justices.
6: Mm-hmm. Why don't we
2: get some politicians in there, or at least somebody who's come from a, a different legal training? Now, Amy Coney Barrett, if she's confirmed... Obviously, it's not going to follow through with that. Another reason to confirm her, maybe. Um, but, yeah, you know, the the lack of debate over uh, the Catholic composition, I think you're right. You can't have a religious test case. But also, religion isn't as much of a, at least within the Christian side of things, isn't as much of an issue. You can well remember, Dave, um, when, you know, that was, the you know, electing a Catholic as a president was a, a big deal. Um, yep. But religion, people just d- If your kid comes home and says, I'm going to marry somebody out of my face, you won't raise an eyebrow. Unless they say they're marrying someone of the other partisan party, then you might raise (laughs) an eyebrow. Religion just isn't as big an issue now, at least within
1: the Christian faith. That's a, that's an amazing thing. I and mean, I remember one time, uh, I grew up Catholic and w- when, when I was late teens, early twenties, my mom, I, I was being recruited to join the Masons, which of course is a Protestant oriented organization. And, and my mom was freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had no idea that there was, there was a, uh, there was such a, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a, a chasm or a chism there or whatever, um, that was still, so alive in, in a lot with a lot of people and uh so you know and i, I guess maybe in, in the res- respect to my 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 dear mom i uh, I did not join the masons, but <laughs> it was just it, i mean it, it, I look back on it now as almost sort of a funny episode but uh but yeah that you 're right that that is uh that, that seems to be a fading feature to some extent in, in large swaths of American life anyway. Matt, I did want to get to uh, one issue before uh, the, the show wraps up, and that is the, the story in the New York Post this week about Hunter Biden uh, and his the, the uh, email he allegedly got referring to some meeting that uh, allegedly involved uh, Hunter Biden's dad, Joe Biden. Uh, a lot of questions being raised about this story uh, in terms of its veracity and its possible links to uh, <clears throat> Russian intelligence, and uh, Rudy Giuliani is a conduit from Russian intelligence, and some shyness uh, by some of the mainstream media that um been pretty widely criticized in the uh, more conservative media, as in, why aren't the mainstream media reporting on this? What are your thoughts
2: I think it's, uh, you know, you raised the point about Russian disinformation. The more you look at the details of how this computer hard drive ended up in Rudy Giuliani's hand, the more it seems like, um, you know, a reprise of the Steele dossier. Um, but from the other side, I mean, it just it's very, it, it smells to me to high heaven as a setup. But I think the other point you make is, in some ways, the more interesting one. Um, both Twitter and Facebook um, refuse to allow. Not only did they not link to the New York Post story, uh, but they refused to allow anyone else to uh, send links. At least Twitter did. Facebook put up some warnings. And that raises some some real issues in an election. And this is really burning up the conservative wires here. They are up in arms about this notion that the social media giants are putting their fingers on the scale. Um, I think that's the real story here, because you've been in the the media business. It raises real questions about uh, the role of the media, and at what point does the media self-censor in in, in the belief that this is harmful to democracy? And when does the self-censorship harm democracy? I I think it's a fascinating question.
1: Well, I mean, I I do think that that Twitter and Facebook both have struggled with how to uh, respond when there are uh, basically untruthful things being put on their on their systems and, and, uh, and I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do or uh, always a comfortable thing to do, uh, I think the other thing to remember here is that these are private companies. And the last time I looked, most conservatives have respect for the idea of private companies. <laughs> and when people throw around the word censorship, uh, that's a government activity. That's a private company activity. Now maybe, uh, these, these private companies have too big a monopoly, but that sounds like something, uh, that would spring from the left to say something like that. So who the heck knows? <laughs> I don't know. Do you, uh, we're, once again, we're into head spinning zone here, I think.
2: Well, you you put an important point here. Um, in contrast to a lot of countries, our media is a private organization. They do have one eye on the bottom line. Um,
1: yep, that's just the, the trade we've made. It's, it's the rules of the game, and they. Man, follow- I got a late cue here. I'm very sorry to interrupt, but we <laughs> were out of time a continued. little bit ago. So sorry. Uh, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's great chatting with. Let's go to a uh, top of the hour CBS News break.
4: <laughs> Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our rockin' deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
0: It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV-FM and AM.
1: Thanks for staying with us into our second hour on this uh, Friday morning, the 16th of October, 2020. What a 2020 it's been, and it's not over yet. (laughs) Hey, uh, Bob Nay joins us this morning, our our regular Friday uh, voice from uh, the past when we used to have talk media news people on almost every day, and uh, talk media news kind of went away, but uh, Bob's still with us, and we're so glad to say, and thank you for joining me this morning, Bob.
0: I have a T-shirt, thank you, Dave. It says "I survived 2020."
1: <laughs> yeah, but you haven't yet. Isn't that a little bit premature? Try, and I'm optimistic. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear you are optimistic. Let's uh, let's all try to keep that in focus. Uh, what's your top headline this morning, Bob?
0: Well, of course, uh, you know the uh, town halls. Uh, yeah. there's a couple of stories, but I mean, I think that the town halls rank at the, the top of the food chain there.
1: Yeah, um, and uh, different uh, overall different tone. Uh, last hour we were using the metaphor of a garden hose versus a fire hose. Does that sound right to you?
0: Right, it was. I mean, the, the plus side, it was a different tone, uh, obviously more substance. The candidates uh, couldn't say anything to each other. The president couldn't interrupt numerous times, you know, and unless he wanted to interrupt the... Uh, moderator live and so that was good i think what was uh missing you know if the networks could have cooperated on two things one uh to spread the two town halls out so that you didn't have to toggle if you wanted to between the two of them or go to google and watch them afterwards i think that's number one number two they could have asked the candidates the same questions now i know one media outlet doesn't want to do that but they could have done that and there would been continuity and then this citizens' questions would have been open-ended. You know, they wouldn't control what the citizens asked. I thought those two elements would have been good. Um, but again, there was more substance by doing it this way. I understand that part of it.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, I, I thought that, they, that in terms of content and actual um, ability of the two candidates to sort of uh, state their cases, um, we, we kind of got more done last night, certainly, than we did in debate number one.
0: Right, we did, and again, if they could have had the same standard questions, that would have been good if they weren't at the same time, because, you know, let's face it, most people did not jump probably between channels. They picked, you know, one one or the other. I would say more people picked Trump because either they like him and they picked it or they don't like him and they want to see how he squirmed or not, you know. That, that would be the case maybe. Uh, I think that, the, uh, frankly, I know everybody... Does this that watches these things? I think that Biden had an easier run of it. I think that uh, obviously Savannah Guthrie uh, was more intense with the president than uh, Stepanoffas was with Biden.
1: Yeah, um, my last hour guest, uh, Matt Dickens, he's a political science professor at Middlebury College here in Vermont, and he, uh, he said, one thing he said was, if you were trying to choose between these two, what, what are you going to watch—a traffic at you know a car crash or traffic flowing normally? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. So
1: I thought, oh yeah, okay. Well, I'll confess I, I actually uh, you know, when it was live, I did go back and watch the Biden one later, but so I'm a little tired this morning, but I um uh, um watched the uh, the I did watch the uh, Trump uh, one uh live on NBC. So, um I wanted to ask you about one other one other thing story this morning or non story or it's uh or it's a non story and it should be a story or whatever and that is um this uh uh rudy Giuliani revelation about hunter Biden this week and an email Biden supposedly got from a uh, uh, uh an advisor to burisma in in the ukraine um and uh, the new york post called this a smoking gun and uh, a bunch of the other media jumped in and said well it could be a smoking gun or maybe it could be russian disinformation we don't really know uh and uh you know we're not gonna we're not gonna treat this story as if it's rock solid and 100 percent true because we haven't been able to confirm it because the giuliani people won't share with us the key data like the the actual hard drive or etc what do you make of all this
0: you know, I'm so torn on this thing. If it, you know, it has tripped the media <clears throat> misinformation alarms. And, of course, people are furious with Twitter uh, over, you know, not carrying this story. And that's a whole other topic we could talk about, the social media and, um, you know, trying to regulate uh, the, the net. But um, back to this deal, I think. You know, supposedly Hunter Biden dropped this laptop off somewhere, or it was his. I mean, first of all, media needs to go to Hunter Biden and say, "Did you drop a laptop off somewhere? Did you did you do that?" Number two, mm-hmm. uh, if the uh, you know, did you or didn't you? And number two um you know the person that shared it probably had no right to share that uh, i would assume whatsoever i think they sign contracts when you drop things off and so that should be looked at on the basis of le- legality or not or criminal action um, the, now getting to the point you know if this is true this is you know obviously a bit damaging i would say at the least but Giuliani Giuliani, um, you know, has to cough up the proof. You just, you just can't make these allegations within weeks of the election without some kind of proof. Here it is. This was his laptop. Because, look, if that's his laptop, there's going to be coding there that they know that it's his laptop if they passed, you know, emails and things. And so I yeah. think that the proof needs to be out there before this runs wild. Um Yeah, will they ever go back to doing that? I don't know. And if Rudy Giuliani did that, it's a misinformation campaign on by him if he knowingly did that. You know, if they start one day, I think of, and I'm speaking from somebody who's been prosecuted for something. If they start one day of prosecuting people for these things, maybe that, just maybe it declines a bit. You know.
1: That's an idea. I mean, uh, you know, I, but and you know, I, I was wondering actually about this, and I, sh- I should find a you know a, a computer tech association mm-hmm. person or something to come on and talk to talk to us about kind of the ethical rules of that trade, um, because uh, you know if I drop my I just did this week I dropped a laptop uh, laptop off at a local computer repair shop here and needed a couple of att- attention to a couple of things. Uh, and if i and if I thought that uh you know not that I have anything really nefarious on my laptop, but uh you know just the very idea that they wouldn 't honor my privacy um would frankly drive me to another computer <laughs> tech store you know i wouldn 't go to that business anymore um, Sure.
0: and you know and look. If you drop a laptop off and you have child porn on that laptop, that is a given that is turned into the FBI. That is a given, because Mm -hmm. that's the law. That's the law. If you have a video where you murder somebody, that's turned in. But if you happen to have, you turn a laptop and you have porn or private pictures of you and a significant other or whatever... And your emails, that is not information that can be turned over uh, to somebody. Now, if in fact the computer people thought that this Hunter Biden deal was something that was in the interest of national security, you'd do one thing with it then. You would turn it over to the FBI, not to Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: yeah, I, I, you don't I mean. Do that. Yeah. CBS had a really interesting interview with this guy McIsaac, the uh, the proprietor of this computer repair shop in oh. Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, uh, they they and they pressed him pretty hard and and it's pretty clear that he was, um, you know if not a, if not an out and out fan of President Trump certainly did not uh, did not think that the impeachment process was fair to the president, uh uh-huh. you know and felt like he needed to take some steps here to counter what he thought was uh you know Democrats stepping over the line and, and a lot of this happened in of course the turn of the year back around December January time period uh-huh. and. um uh and i mean that's the other aspect of course this thing is for some reason i can't imagine why but why would rudy giuliani sit on sit on that information all the way to (laughs) mid-october
0: now when did they supposedly drop this off uh
1: it was dropped off i think sometime back to maybe the summer of uh, 19 yeah and then
0: they when did they give it to rudy do you know
1: uh, I, I, I think I saw that, that again, this was, that was more like January or so of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and this is, you know, at the height of the whole impeachment hearings sure. and, and, and all of that stuff. So, so the whole discussion about Burisma and Hunter Biden very much, you know, in the spotlight back then. Um, and, and, uh, this computer repair tech, I guess, took it upon himself to say, Hey, I got this laptop here. I'm going to make a copy of the hard drive and, uh, you know, pass it on, um, Oh. uh to these people um you see, know what
0: you just said makes me suspicious of the time frame if Giuliani had this uh, and again you know if again if if this is true and they need to pursue Hunter Biden so be it fine you know
6: yeah uh, yeah i say so too
0: authorities. but i think if they aren't. If you sign in for a computer, I and I think your idea is great. To call a computer guy, and you sign in for a computer, and it says it'll be held confidential, and they turned it over FBI because they thought it was national security. That's fine. It doesn't violate the contract, but if they turn it over to somebody associated with Giuliani. It does, and again, I would assume that's a, a criminal charge. I would assume.
1: Yeah, I. You know, I, th- I think the. Um it's it, it. It's really an interesting question. I I don't know whether there are any laws governing this kind of behavior by uh, computer technicians or, uh, I, I mean I, I most professions have you know le- the legal profession certainly journalists have the society uh, professional journalists uh, ethical standards, uh, um you know doctors, um people who work in the mental health field uh, there are all sorts of ethical. Conduct books out there for different professions. Okay. I don't know whether there is one for computer techs. Uh, maybe there needs to be, um, but I would think that uh, you know, sort of rule number one, or very high up on the list for my for my estimation, would be you you honor the privacy of your clients. Uh, sure, exactly. and, unless there was child porn, which. Well, or unless there, I I would say unless there's a subpoena, unless there's a subpoena. If you get a subpoena from, you know, legit subpoena from a law enforcement agency, then you turn the stuff over. But uh, frankly, I don't care about the contents. You know, if you, if you're a computer tech, it's not really your business. Although sometimes, you know, in other fields there are people called mandatory reporters. So let's say you are working in the nursing profession and you come across in a patient, uh, you know strong evidence of child abuse or something um then you have a duty to report that evidence you know right. you, the, the kid comes into your doctor 's office with bruises and et cetera uh looking like child child abuse you have a, right. a, a duty to report that yeah. maybe it, there could be written into a law that if a computer taxis um child porn on a computer then they have a uh, same mandatory reporter obligation fine if that's the way you know a state legislature or the congress wants to write the law i could see you know reasons for that but um uh, short of that short of uh, you know some kind of real standard saying this is the this is the, the path of conduct to follow i would think the general rule would be uh uh, confidentiality for your the client for whom you're doing this work so i mean that's <laughs> well,
0: I sort think, of i mean looking at then
1: my other thought
0: dave was this when i first heard this story break is it's really is hunter biden that not bright i don't want to call him dumb is he that not bright that you take your laptop in and you've got if if that is on there that you actually here take take my laptop uh that's what made me suspicious. I would assume he would have erased those emails. You know Well there's that it there, cropped up uh publicly.
1: And, and and supposedly the header on the email had to do about, but, but something about meeting for coffee, right? And so um, and this is it's fascinating to me that this computer tech would happen to find on this hard drive among thousands and thousands of emails, this thing headlined meeting for coffee or something like that. And, and I've seen that it has it, international significance. <laughs> I,
0: I think we have to own up here. If if, if if you and I had a computer company together, right? Yeah. in walked Donald Trump Jr. or Hunter Biden and said, Here's my laptop.
1: Fix my laptop, please. I
0: may not have turned it into Rudy Giuliani. I might have surfed it, though. All right?
1: Well, <laughs> on. I would probably, <laughs> as, as your co-worker, I would have said, hey, Bob, get to work. We have a lot of other machines yeah. to fix.
0: And go in the other room and do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um,
1: All right. Well, um, speaking of getting to work, uh, this has been fun, but i got to get to some other stuff All here. Right. Bob, thank you so much for joining okay. me this morning, and let's do it again okay. next Friday. Okay, All right. Thank you. We wanted to get an update on uh, the COVID-19 situation here in Vermont. It uh, seems to be... Uh, on an upswing around the country, and uh, in Europe, I guess it's in a, uh, a, a real crisis uh, in that part of the world. Uh, we're going to find out from Deputy Health Commissioner Tracy Dolan uh, about uh, what's going on here in Vermont, and I believe she's on the phone with us. Good morning, Tracy. Thank you for for joining us.
7: Hi. Good morning. How are you today?
1: I'm doing pretty well, uh, and I wanted to... Uh, Check in with you. I just saw a news release actually come out. Uh, the timing is a bit pretty amazing here at 10:14 a.m popped into my email box. It says the Vermont Department of Health is investigating an outbreak of COVID-19 cases among members of youth and adult recreational hockey and broomball teams in central Vermont. The outbreak is associated with people who practiced or played at the central Vermont Memorial Civic Center in Montpelier earlier this month. Health officials said there has been no community spread of the virus beyond close contacts at this time. And um, uh, obviously makes a lot of people here right in the uh, part of the uh, WDEV listening area quite nervous to hear about this in uh, in our own communities um and uh, what is the general sense is is Vermont uh is, is Vermont getting to be uh, scarier on the COVID-19 front or um or how should people be uh, viewing this viewing this whole situation right now uh
7: that's a good question <clears throat> no I wouldn't say it's getting scarier on the COVID-19 front the uh, the slight uptick is something that we expected, especially uh, one minute, please. Especially as we see um, students going back to school, colleges, um, and then the travel that we see around um, the tourism, and more Vermonters going out to travel and coming back. So all of that, and then opening up the economy, we knew that we'd have a little uptick in cases, and that's what we're generally having. Most of our outbreaks appear to be contained um, and appear not to translate into community transmission. That means that when we do have an outbreak of, let's say, three or more cases that are linked, we are able to reach out to those cases, reach out to their close contacts, people that they've spent significant amount of time with in a close uh, area. And then um, once we do that, that generally closes out the outbreak. So generally what we don't see is then, um, you know, two or three connections away spread into the community. So that's, that's the good news on that. Uh, again, you know, we are doing a lot of testing in Vermont compared to what we were doing before. So we do expect with more testing, we'll see a few more cases, but generally we are able to contain it. Um, we don't have anybody currently hospitalized because of COVID-19, which is good news. And, uh, You know we are really encouraging people to keep doing what you need to do travel is one of our key pieces that's really coming up right now either people who are traveling and coming back and not quarantining traveling to red zones it's not safe right now to be traveling to a yellow or red zone um you know and then to possibly bring it back to your with yourself or to your family and then of course people traveling in from out of state and not quarantining is a challenge and so that's where we've really got to buckle down and, you know, continue all the other pieces, the masks, the distancing. We're in for a little bit of a long haul, but we've been doing pretty well so far.
1: Has has Vermont or any part of the state been converted from uh, green to yellow?
7: Um, I did hear that we had a county that went to yellow, but I don't have that in front of me right now. We don't use that coloring system here within Vermont because we're not restricting travel within Vermont. So we haven't been using that system.
1: I see. Okay, and and I saw you know this is again national reporting, but I saw a uh, a map on one of the cable channels the other evening. I, I just had, it happened to, I mean, it was a very passing reference, uh, but uh, it had an arrow pointing towards several states with the word spike, uh, you know, in, in the arrow or connected to it or whatever. One of the arrows was pointing at Vermont. Is there any reason that that would be happening? Somebody would oh, we- be reporting a spike.
7: Yeah, we wouldn't describe it as a spike, but we certainly got an uptick right now um, in October, um, and that's expected. I think a spike—we you know—we may have had a one-day spike if uh, there was a particular outbreak, but we certainly have a a small increase. But our positivity rate continues to remain low. Um, Our contact tracing team continues to be effective. Uh, Our concern now is that people really think hard about the travel with vacation and um, different holidays coming up. Uh, you know, we're still very much in a cautious mode, and we encourage people to have small gatherings. You know, flying members in from out of state, from a red area, is ill-advised at this time. Um, mm-hmm. So really think hard about what you're doing over the holidays. Um, and continue to do the mask wearing, especially when you're out in public. Continue to do the six-foot distancing. You know, I think we can weather this uptick, but we just really need to stay vigilant.
1: In terms of people's just sort of regular daily lives, uh, I remember a month or so ago um, asking you uh, whether it was advisable for folks who sort of can work from home to continue doing so. Is that still the case?
7: Yeah, I I mean, we're not putting out any official recommendations on how people should work. um, But I would say that however you can work that minimizes contact in a large group continues to be smart. If companies are able to accommodate that, I know there are essential workers who can't do that, so it's not an entirely equitable situation, but where mm-hmm. people can do that, that would seem to make sense.
1: Oh, uh, Back to the Montpelier uh, outbreak uh, just for a moment here. Um, the Times-Argus is reporting in their uh, edition of Today that uh, two uh, positive cases has, have been reported at the Union Elementary School in uh, in in the city, um, is that any, uh, are those at all connected in any way to the uh, uh, outbreak uh, stemming from just a couple miles away at the Civic Center?
7: I don't know which schools have cases that are connected, but we do know that some of the school cases are connected because there were some kids or contacts related. Um, so far, we've had no um, transmission within a school between students. Um, but uh, so we may have a couple of cases that are in schools that happen to be those youth But so far we haven't had kids um, transmitting back and forth to one another The schools really have been good around their social distancing and their mitigating Although, you know, that that could change at any, at any time, obviously But so far um, we've had good success there So yes, possibly some of the cases in schools might be related to this outbreak I just don't have which schools in front of me those are
1: Yeah, okay Uh, I mean, it just you—you see these two uh, dots, uh, one being the the hockey or broomball arena outbreak, and and one being at a school uh, very nearby, and you kind of go, "Hmm, I bet you—is there, you know, sort of a way to connect those dots?" Um, And and uh, but uh, we'll um, we'll be exploring uh, more aspects of the coronavirus situation here in Vermont and elsewhere, Uh, we got to go to a bottom-of-the-hour break for some CBS News uh, upcoming here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Tracy Dolan is my guest and we'll return with more conversation with her in just a moment. And uh wanted to remind you before we go to the break that uh, just after 11 o'clock we'll be hearing uh, Governor Phil Scott and other top state officials, including uh, the Health Commissioner, Dr. Mark Levine, uh, and others talking about the state's response to the COVID 19 crisis uh, stay with us and we'll talk more with Tracy Dolan in just a couple moments folks
4: exciting things are happening in Warren Village the Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our rockin' deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
2: It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV.
1: My guest is Tracy Dolan. She is the Deputy Commissioner of Health for the state of Vermont. We're talking about the uh, coronavirus uh, crisis ongoing and uh, the state's response to it. Uh, also, uh, trying to bring in some of the bigger picture of what's going on nationally and internationally with the coronavirus right now. And uh, Tracy, I'm going to ask you what may come across as a bit of a dumb question. Uh, I'm certainly not an epidemiologist or a public health expert by any means, but uh if I were to say that maybe the curve of this thing is changing a little bit in the sense that, I mean, here we have this uptick in Vermont, but no hospitalizations. Um, here we have a very famous case of just you know, a week or two ago uh, down in Washington uh, where uh, somebody said, uh, we went to the hospital for a couple of days, came home and then said, don't let it dominate your life. It's you know, not the worst thing in the world or something like that. Um, is, is there any sense that the severity of this disease when people get it is, is, uh, or, or the, the way we should gauge that is changing at all?
7: I, it appears, and I would have to check the data, it appears that the mortality rate from the uh, illness is um, easing, um, but we hmm. know less about um, the long-term impacts. So there certainly continue to be deaths every day, many, um, in the United States. We're not seeing them in Vermont, but we're also seeing... Um, fewer cases and milder cases, um, and it continues to be that if somebody's elderly and has other health issues, um, you know, it is more severe for them generally, and it's more severe for people who have other illnesses generally. Um, but we are still seeing deaths among people who would otherwise be healthy. But yes, it appears um, that some of the treatments and some of the early um, care is assisting in that way. I would not say that the um, overall pandemic is less of a threat um we you know we see the uptick uh, quebec had 1,000 new cases yesterday for example um and so we know that that will likely involve you know health care as well so uh there are it's emerging um it continues to be emerging even though we've had it now around since uh since january in the united states um and so we're still learning about other long-term effects and so that's what I would hmm. say there. I, I don't have more information about severity other than you're right, the mortality rate seems to be decreasing, um, and hospitalization um, has always been low in Vermont with this illness. Um, but, uh, but we do know that people are still becoming ill, seriously ill, and, and in some cases uh, dying. And we do know that there are some long-term effects that we're just starting to learn about.
1: And, uh, well, let's go to a listener who's calling in. I believe it's John from Waterbury. Good morning.
0: Good morning. I just have a quick question. I'm curious why, uh, if we do have a county in Vermont that's uh, showing the same kind of uh, changes that would be classified as a yellow county in adjoining states, why we're not having the same thing happen here? Is what good, what's good for the goose not good for the gander?
1: interesting question there John if, if uh, let's just say for instance I don't know that which county it is but let's imagine for a moment it were uh, Wyndham County let's say where Brattleboro is and uh, Bellas Falls and so on uh, should a vermonter traveling from you know Waterbury to uh, Brattleboro for the weekend to visit friends or family or something uh, should they quarantine on return uh, Tracy Dolan
7: No, that is not our policy so uh, travel is free throughout Vermont and does not require quarantine. Now you may choose, you may choose to look at the map and make different decisions on your own, but we have not done that. For the most part, we have not found that travel within Vermont appears to be a cause of transmission. And so that's basically the science is determining what we're doing and right now the science is showing us that travel in and around Vermont for the most part does not appear to be driving um, transmission or infection.
1: That answer your question, John?
0: Well, I, yeah, it answers, it, it responds to my question. But I was going to go to uh, Essex County this week, and uh, it turned from green to yellow, and I chose to uh, not go because of that. And I just thought this uh, same kind of concept should work here in Vermont. You know, I can I can
7: provide a little more on that. The other difference sure. is we we don't have a lot of community wide transmission. So you might see a change in the case rate in a particular county, but in most cases, that's probably related to an outbreak. And almost all of our outbreaks are contained, which means we know the cases, we know the contacts, they're in quarantine and we're managing it. It's not out um, spreading among the community in a way that appears to be in an erratic pattern. So when we say that other counties go into yellow and red, often there's community transmission in those other counties outside of Vermont and in those states. But for the most part, the transmission in Vermont, community transmission, is fairly low. And when a particular county's rate goes up, it's usually related to a contained group. Um, and so for the most part, doesn't pose a threat to everyone else, assuming they're doing all the right things um, with masking and distancing and, you know, washing their hands and staying home when they're sick. So it's a slightly different description of what's going on, even though the numbers look relatively high.
1: All right. And, and. When you're talking about relatively high numbers, if it's Essex County, and I did not know this, John, so that's interesting, uh, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of times uh, uh, among the best sources of information we have here on WDEV are our listeners calling in to share what they've learned. Uh, and uh, uh, if if that's the case, if that's the county, then, then uh, it wouldn't take much of a change to look like um, a significant statistical difference in a tiny place like Essex County. I mean, is that, am I getting that roughly right, Tracy Dolan?
7: Yeah, you're right. Because of Vermont, uh, because we're in Vermont, we have small numbers. It can be quite a small change. So it's not hundreds of people ever in a county. It might be that it went from having seven people, uh, to having 17 people because of a small outbreak. So it's not like you're walking around and there are hundreds walking around. I'm looking at the case counts here. I'm trying to find Essex. Um, but we have fairly low case counts. Sorry, Essex isn't jumping out at me. But we have a map that looks at each um, each county. Yeah
1: and uh the, 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 so so I mean i I guess there are those sort of economies of scale or i'm i 'm not sure exactly what the proper phrase is i don 't think that 's it now that I, I reflect on it for another second uh but 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 these statistics in Vermont can often let, times look weird because you know uh going from one to two is a doubling oh my God, a hundred percent increase <laughs> so
0: uh
1: but uh John uh, thank you for the call i think you you raised some interesting questions here just about uh how we uh how we are responding to this and um and tracy i think in, in a broader sense uh, that raises another question which is sometimes the uh, it seems as though these policies that the state is adopting are you know I, I understand you all are are doing your best and putting a lot of thought into these, but occasionally there are um there are sort of the ends of a curve in any statistical uh, population or whatever that uh, start to fray a little bit. Uh, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, and and uh, is that just uh, some of the noise you have to deal with all the time?
7: Sure. Can you describe a little bit more about what you're talking about—the ends of the curve and the fray?
1: Well, I, I guess I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is that sometimes. Um, there are statistical anomalies and, and things that that, that uh, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a good example here, and I'm struggling, unfortunately. But <laughs> there, are, uh, you know, so you come up with a, with a policy that I mean, just for example, the thing that John raises about it looks like a uh, it looks like unequal treatment or whatever, traveling out of state yeah. versus traveling to this one Vermont county that that has yeah. registered in by some lights as a yellow um, and 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 it's and, it, and and then you sort of layer over that the broader policy that we don't, uh, require quarantining for anyone traveling within Vermont. Um, and there, then there might be this, this weird instance where, well, if it makes sense for, uh, to apply quarantine to somebody traveling to a yellow county in Maine or Rhode Island, Rhode Island or something, maybe we should do that for this county in Vermont, but, uh, We're not doing that because we have this broader policy. That's where I'm going, really, with this. It's it's hard to come up with with a policy that fits every case.
7: Yes, that's right. And, you know, we were really um, doing this as we go along. So early on when we started putting up different kinds of regulations, you might see something on the Commerce website and then on the Department of Health website and the tourism website there might be small differences because we're all creating policies we're talking but things are we're getting updated literally every 48 hours and um and so you might see small inconsistencies so we just continue to work to make things consistent but of course there are always cases i mean the question came up yesterday well what if you have to go somewhere for a legal appointment for just two hours you know versus a medical appointment Um, you know, which is allowable if you have to go into another state and you drive there directly for a short medical appointment and come back if it's nearby versus going in for a different kind of appointment. And and we're not going to come up with every instance. And so what we're hoping is that people comply with the guidelines and use their best discretion when the guidelines don't describe exactly their situation.
1: Yeah sometimes you have to apply your old good old-fashioned common sense but uh yeah. that's uh yeah. and uh so fill, fill in the gaps that way folks and tracy dolan i i want to get back to uh something you touched on briefly earlier and that is uh the sort of um effort to balance uh uh continuing caution about uh, you know avoiding the spread of the coronavirus and so on and um uh, and the sort of desire and, and real need, I think a lot of people would call it, uh, to reopen our economy and to try to get uh, life back to as close to something uh, normal as possible. Um, and uh, talk to us about what some of the... Where we are, and so I think a lot of people lose track because things change over time, frequently enough that I'm trying to remember: are restaurants at full capacity now, or is it still somewhat restricted? Or um, and uh, what about uh, what about lodgings and so on? the Other kinds of businesses in Vermont. Uh, what are, are or are the rules saying? Basically, we're pretty wide open at this point.
7: So, Dave, if you actually want to do um, a focus on the regulations, I'm going to have to recommend someone else. I'm out of the public health section, but the regulations come out of the Commerce Department. So I, I know some of the general ones, but I don't have all the details on the regulations. That would take me a little bit to research.
1: But yeah. I'm okay. Going to
7: pivot back to public health, I know that we increase capacity in restaurants and lodging as well, um, but I, I can't quote you the percentage right now.
1: I see. Okay. Hey, uh, we have a listener on the line. Let's go to David in Greensboro. Good morning, David.
8: Good morning. And since you're almost done, I thought I would call in about uh, tech services for computers. Mm-hmm. Because when you were talking with that professional earlier, we didn't cover why we should go to some of these local services. And that's because they, they have their own standards as to what they're going to look for um, in problem solving. And I was thinking of the North Branch Um, at 41 State Street and Computer Barn on, um, uh, what's the highway, Route 302?
1: Yep, the Barry Montpelier Road, yep.
8: And then there's uh, Staples right across the road from them. Mm -hmm. Those are all good places where you can take a computer for fixing, and they're going to give you an idea of what they're going to be looking through your computer for and what um, they're going to ignore?
1: Hmm. Um, and do you know uh, if they have any um, any rules uh, for their staff, for instance, about um, privacy or on the standards.
8: part? Yeah. Yeah. And I d- I don't know. And I thought you might want to inquire.
1: About that. Because I mean, I, I can imagine you, you look, let's say you, David, let's say you live in, in a small town and, uh, uh, and the, and the computer tech, uh, has somebody call, come in and the computer tech knows about, um the fact that this customer is married and is also having an affair with somebody else and then the computer tech is reading, looking at emails with, between the, uh, the customer and the person with whom the customer is having the affair, uh, and then, you know, that, that can be, pretty hot info on the local rumor mill and gossip mill, right? Um, uh, I would think that that computer tech would have some professional and ethical obligation to uh, keep a lid on it and not say anything to anybody. Um, Is that the case, you know? Absolutely.
8: Absolutely. And that's what we want to know. So if you should call these people and, and give us a report on that, it would be helpful to all of us.
1: Yep. Okay. Let me. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pursue this topic. I think it's actually a pretty fascinating one, and we're gonna have a a, a guest or, or two or three on the Dave Graham Show sometime in the coming days. Or you know, it might take me a week or more, but I'm gonna try to find some computer techs to uh, talk to us about what the what the standards are in that in that profession. And uh, but uh, thanks for the call. Uh, I appreciate it. We're gonna get back to our our conversation now with uh, Tracy Dolan, the Deputy Commissioner of, of Health, who I, who I suspect does not really want to comment on the ethics of computer technicians, do you, Tracy?
7: I think I I will not, but I did look up, actually, I did get the information on that first question you asked. Uh, Uh For bars and restaurants, it's 50% capacity, and for lodging and accommodation, they may book up to 100% of rooms.
1: I see, okay. Uh, Bars and restaurants, of course, uh, you know, they they, uh, uh, often we're working at fairly narrow margins before the uh, coronavirus crisis hit um and now we're in the situation especially for restaurants where um over the summer um uh, people were doing a lot of outdoor dining and stuff to try to mitigate the risk of in, you know being indoors in a closed environment uh outdoor dining is getting a little less friendly now since so it's getting colder um
0: it is yes
1: yeah and and so um you know, once again, we have this sort of balancing act between the uh, risks of the coronavirus and the desire to uh, keep our restaurant industry in some kind of reasonable shape. Um, how do you strike that?
7: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. There's no doubt about this. This has been a hit on the economy all over the country. Vermont's no different. I know a lot of restaurants have pivoted to more takeout, and some have been able to um uh, gain some customers and some business that way. But obviously it continues to be a challenge. But our first priority has to be people's health. And we will continue to look at the science, look at our health status, and look at ways that we can open up. But we have to keep an eye on those numbers. We're seeing in other states and all across the country, we're not out of the woods. And in some cases, you know, they're going in the wrong direction. So we really have to be aware, especially coming into flu season, uh, we don't want um, a double uh, a double uh, pandemic of flu and um, COVID happening at the same time, so we just have to be very careful. And so, as a public health professional, um, our first job is to look at the public health first.
1: And uh, that, I'm, and uh, believe me, I'm glad. I am very glad, and I think most people are that there are folks like you who are looking at the public health first because obviously there are uh, other considerations uh, out there sort of competing for our attention, and uh, it's great to have uh, people saying, well, we got these public health concerns over here, and we better uh, pay attention, and that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, let's see. I think we have another listener checking in. Wade from Corinth is on the line. Good morning, Wade.
6: Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Ms. Dolan. So, yeah, I don't know if it's the, the shorter days or – the leaves are falling or the elections are coming, but it certainly seems like the walls are closing in a little <laughs> as of lately. <laughs> so, Premature wanna...
1: cabin fever or what, Wade?
6: I know, and we haven't even had snow on the ground yet. We usually don't yeah. do that until March, right? <laughs> so, right, you know, right. It's going to be a long winter. But but speaking of winters, and this is, uh, this is helpful for us, um, we're over here again at Northeast Slopes, and we have some, a pretty critical meeting tomorrow on, on what we're going to do this, this winter. So this fast-tracks the, the question for me a little bit. Um, Outdoor events or outdoor venues, is that still at 150 capacity per event?
7: Uh, Yes, I'm reading it right here, Uh, 150 people outdoors,
6: yes. Okay. What if you were able to separate certain groups in in any particular way? Does Does that negate that at all?
7: You know, I don't see a lot of wiggle room right now on this. That could change, and, of course, the ski industry might be a little bit different because of the nature Of that business, I think there's guidance being uh, developed right now to assist the ski industry. So I can't speak to that. But right now, um, the max is 150 people outdoors.
6: Yeah, yeah. Because I could see, you know, for our little volunteer ski area, 150 would be a darn good day, you know, on a sunny Sunday afternoon. Um, 150 people showing up at a chemo or stow, you know, wouldn't wouldn't cover the electric bill.
7: Well, just to be clear, that's around restaurants, catering, food service, and bars. So um, I don't know that we will apply that kind of standard to something like people skiing on a mountain. You know that yeah. might be very different. And so there's guidance going to be coming out about that. But for example, yeah. if you have a if you have a huge cross-country ski area and everybody's out on their own and they're separated. Uh, this is really, just to be clear, around bars, restaurants, catering, and yeah. food service.
6: We're, we're a small area. We do have lift lines where people would be congregating in three different spots, two or three different Sounds spots. like a more uh, thorough discussion
1: is needed on the ski yeah. industry and the COVID crisis uh, in, in the coming weeks yeah. also. I'll put we'll, that on we'll, my we'll list. Be, we'll be looking hey, a uh, we're time. about out of time, though. i got to get uh, Tracy Dolan. Uh, th- th- thank you for the call, Wade. Interesting question. Tracy Dolan, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Good conversation, and uh, have a good weekend.
7: Thanks. You Tracy. too. Have a great weekend. Get outside. Tracy is the... Uh,
1: Deputy Health Commissioner, that's about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show. Have a good weekend, everybody.